From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. Today, Plaid builds a payment partner ecosystem. Klarna and Stripe announce a buy now, pay later partnership. And Monzo's London bus campaign spawns Twitter hilarity. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we'd like to tell you a little bit about something we're cooking up here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is a world leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks deliver outstanding banking experiences to more than 1.2 billion people. Scale 2021 is Temenos' dedicated, free-to-attend virtual developer event. It includes customer presentations, product demos, roadmap sessions, as well as opportunities for you to speak with Temenos experts. You'll also hear insights from industry leaders on current technology trends and how they impact banking today. Whether you're a developer, consultant, or business user, discover the latest in banking technology with Terminos Software. Search Terminos Scale 2021 to find out more. Banks need to adopt a cloud-first approach. When you consider all the benefits that cloud-based systems offer, it should be a no-brainer. Banks can work faster and smarter to deliver market-leading services at scale. Read more about moving to the cloud in our latest report in association with Encino. Just head to bit.ly forward slash cloud banking report. Welcome to episode 576 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra Kiwana and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News today by my colleague, Alex Hooper, senior software engineer at 11SS Foundry. Welcome to your debut on Fintech Insider, Alex. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to at 11FS? Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, usually I'm on the other end. I'm listening to the podcast. I'm not actually on one. So this is a this is a nice surprise. Yeah, so uh, you, you gave a great introduction. I'm Alex. I'm one of the engineers working on 11FS Foundry. If you don't know what Foundry is, it's basically our fintech operating system. 11FS has been building banks for a good few years now, and we've learned a few lessons over those years. So we decided to create a platform or a banking as a service platform to be able to allow customers to spin up financial propositions such as a current account, a consumer loan in weeks instead of months. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll be sort of shamelessly plugging Foundry here and there throughout the, the podcast. But um, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Uh, also, if you look at our YouTube, uh, Alex's are the face of Foundry. So more on that another day. Um, and of course, we're always joined by some really special guests. Uh, so today, making their FinTech Insider debut, I would like to welcome Paul Williamson, Head of Revenue and Partnerships at Plaid. Paul, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this exciting news week for you. Uh, we'll get to hear about a little bit more later. Um, so our listeners should be familiar with Plaid, but uh, for those who, who may not be, can you give us some more insight into Plaid and your role at Plaid? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, Guerra, Alex, thank you very much for having me as part of the show today. It's a real pleasure to be joining uh, 11FS. A little bit of background on me. Uh, my name is Paul Williamson. I lead revenue uh, and partnerships here at Plaid. Um, and if you don't know much about Plaid, we are the infrastructure for financial services. We are the platform that helps every single company become a fintech. Awesome. Thank you. And also making a fintech insider debut, we've got Jeremy Tackle, co-founder and CEO of Pennyworth. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll delve a little bit more into some exciting news from you later. Uh, but can you give our listeners a little bit of background on you and Pennyworth? Yes, thanks very much for uh, inviting me along. My name is uh, Jeremy Tackle and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pennyworth, which is a, a new startup bank uh, targeting the aspiring affluent, which we set up in 2019 uh, after having left I, I had having left Barclays uh, following a sort of 25-year career there. Uh, spent most of my time at Barclays building banks around the world, and so I found it was time to try to do it on my own. Last but not least, we are joined by the amazing Rob Beresford, General Manager of TAP at Button. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming along today. Can you give us a brief introduction to Button and a bit of insight into your latest TAP announcement, or is it TAP? Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm actually a long-time FinTech Insider listener, first-time guest, so this is like a weird, geeky fanboy moment for me. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, as you said, I run TAP at Button. Uh, which uh, covers most of our fintech integrations. What we do is we offer loyalty and reward products to fintechs. So if you are the CEO or a product manager, Jeremy, I expect your call afterwards, uh, and you have KPIs, you probably have KPIs around new user acquisition, but you will also have KPIs around 
retention and engagement. If you have those KPIs, you've probably looked at loyalty and reward products. If you're going to build a loyalty and reward product in mobile, in fintech, you're probably going to call Button. Uh, and so we do that for a bunch of a bunch of really big fintechs. Uh, last week we announced our partnership with Cap One, which was super exciting. And today we announced our partnership with Cash App. And so we Cash App owned by Square. Um, we power a bunch of their card linking offers, uh, rewards between Cash App and brands like Uber and Groupon and Burger King. Um, so yeah, exciting week for Button. That's awesome. We're going to dive into a lot of that in a bit. So not only is this a podcast, it's also a networking and uh, client pipeline acquisition opportunity. So, all right. So and with that, let's get into the news. So in our first segment, we're going to talk about uh, a story that came from payments. So Plaid builds a partner ecosystem to simplify A to A account to account payments. Uh, so Plaid is introducing a new ecosystem of payment partners intended to deliver frictionless account to account financial transactions that are smooth and secure. To accommodate the changing payments environment, Plaid is striving to help companies of all sizes and industries leverage the A2A payment opportunity, regardless of their technical capabilities. Plaid's new ecosystem includes close to 50 partners comprising of payment firms, tech companies, banking as a service providers uh, in North America and Europe. Alongside the ecosystem launch, Plaid is also partnering with Checkout.com and Marketa to further advance connected payments experiences for fintechs using Plaid. So naturally, Paul, uh, we're going to come to you first uh, on this as you announced this via a blog on Plaid's website. Can you give us a little bit more detail on what this ecosystem entails? Absolutely. And so I think the exciting thing from Plaid's perspective is that we've been seeing a pretty continual evolution in terms of the use and interest in account-to-account payment. And really what we've been focused on is making sure that every single one of Plaid's clients, every single one of those companies who wants to become a fintech can have the easiest and, uh, you know, new additional ways to essentially interact and move money across the financial system. So we've really been focused over the last two years about building an ecosystem to support that. And what we wanted to do from that perspective is bring together a really interesting cross-section of partners that really tackle different and unique customer use cases uh, and really help Plaid and those clients become the enabler for access to account to account payment. So that's what we've been focused on. And it's been really a big culmination of a couple of years worth of work that we could actually share with kind of the, the world more broadly as of uh, as of last week. That's really exciting. I think um, it's it's really coming at a, at a good time, especially as the pandemic is winding down. People are getting more used to online payments and account to account payments are really, really promising technology that 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 can be leveraged. Um, so, Alex, I'm going to come to you. So this story is talking a little bit about um, open banking. Do you have any thoughts about account to account payments and what that enables for fintechs building and fintechs and other businesses building services for customers? Yeah, no, great question. Um, first of all, I, I've actually used Plaid quite a lot in some sort of side projects, so um, I know that I know the platform well. <laughs> Tinkering for hours upon hours using it. Um, yeah, no, I think account to account payments is a really interesting one. I think it's. I think it's different all around the world. I think especially if you think about it from a, uh, I think traditionally that was quite a hard thing to do. I don't, for I look personally at like Monzo, right? For me, that is the gold standard in, you know, I guess if we're talking about transferring money to a, a friend, the easiest way to do that for me is to use Monzo, right? It's it's super easy. And I'm I'm guessing Plaid is trying to enable other fintechs around the world to be able to to sort of have that kind of capability, right? Exactly right. And I think that's super interesting. Um, and I think it's an area that... I, it's funny because I um, this is a this is a, a shout out to a company I know that's starting up in the UK called Trillo. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them. They're trying to facilitate kind of like account to account transfers using QR codes. So they're trying to sort of bypass uh, all the sort of credit card and debit card systems and the payment rails and use an open banking style sort of proposition to do that. And that's just one example of I think where they're they're solving a really unique problem of kind of bypassing those payment fees and all of those transaction fees that a traditional card operator might have and enabling using something like Plaid, for example, and those account-to-account 
payments and transfers that are essentially free, right? And that, that, look, that's a good point, Alex. And, and to build on that a little bit, like if, if you look at the use, you know, in your example, the Monzo example, um, if you look at the use of just mobile wallets in general, kind of 2020 was a really kind of breakout year, right? As this, you know, the pandemic really kind of drove this sort of tectonic shift across to essentially stored value cards and mobile wallets and things like that. Like essentially mobile wallet, value kind of exceeded cash for the first time in 2020. And then if you look at the number of people who were using digital wallets, like there's an expectation that, you know, we're going to go from about 2.6 billion to about 4.4, 4.5 billion users by 2025. So this is really kind of meeting the consumer as to where they're at. And I think the critical part there is this offers just another way for, an, for a consumer to be part of the financial system. There's obviously plenty of alternatives, but I think that the critical piece here is giving people um, a better product experience in a digital and mobile environment, um, but also making it easier for people. And we, and we really see that as kind of we're, we're building this ecosystem of partner and connectivity, but most importantly, simplicity. So more people can be in the financial system, which I think will be a great thing for tech platforms and app providers, as well as consumers, merchants, and, and the like. Yeah, that, I think this is really great. And with also the benefits of the ecosystem, I think that, that this this is this is going to play a huge role in, in helping uh, companies, uh, you know, build, build a lot faster, build a lot more specifically for their communities and their niches. Jeremy, as someone who's in the process of building a neobank, can you tell us a little bit more about, about the value of, of, a, of, a, of a service like this and other BAS platforms that, that allow you to, to uh, get up and get scaled pretty quickly? Because like, what, 20 years ago, this was impossible, or at least like needed a lot more heavy lifting and a lot more um, of internal work to, to get these things up and running. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about uh, what, you, what you think of this story? Yeah, I mean, it's a good example of how I think the market's completely changed. I mean, when I was building banks in, around Asia, uh, Middle East, elsewhere, 10 years ago, you, know, you were building still big data centers, big physical infrastructure, and, and that's completely changed. And your ability now, not only not to have to build a lot of your own core technology in a bank build, but actually assemble it, essentially curate it as a, as a software, as a service. Now, for our bank, Pennyworth, we're very much focused on the core balance sheet businesses, such as savings and loans. We're not going to have a checking account, a current account. And so those parts of the ecosystem that we're interested in are the sort of core banking, but also open banking. So instead of wanting to go down the route of having our own uh, payments card or payments pr uh, current account product, uh, we're using a lot of the new rails that are available through open banking to actually uh, bring together the customer's finances, bring together the data that otherwise is normally available there. And that's only really been possible in the last few years. We, we experimented a bit with, as we built the digital consumer bank in the US for Barclays, we started experimenting with that. There's very good availability and uh, behaviors around aggregation of data in the US. And we were able to use that to demonstrate that customers that were coming in as a loan or a card customer willing to aggregate their, their accounts and and you could use that same data as you would do a normal current account. And with open banking, open finance in the UK, that's absolutely something that, that's clear. So for, for us, less less uh, direct as a payment to payment uh, ca uh, capability, although, you know, always an opportunity, but just, just the general uh, thought around how now fintech as a service has fundamentally changed, how quickly, it, how quickly you can build a bank in a way that, you, that even the early neobanks just didn't have those options. Jeremy, do you think this has driven your need and ability to differentiate? The fact that you can get to market so much quicker has kind of given you ability to, to kind of build something more unique on top of those rails. I definitely think that's true. I think it, it's begged the question first and foremost is about why are you trying to be a bank? One of the key things I think that is now critical is that you can demonstrate why you are a bank and why you need to be a bank. And whilst it's now easier to perhaps have the underlying products, you've still got to demonstrate, obviously, that you're a viable regulated business. And for I think uh, that what that means is you're begging the question, okay, what do customers need a bank for? And what am I uniquely able to bring to that question? Absolutely. And I, you know what? I think definitely this is such a great interaction, like seeing people who are building it and the people who are actually using this um, interact. Uh, but, but Paul, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, 
what what do you think the, the, the picture will be, the end result of, of the partnerships that you've you've forged and and the outcomes for end users as well? Like what what, what is this gonna look like, big picture? Yeah, absolutely. Look, number one, this is just a start for us in terms of building this as an ecosystem. You know, from from that perspective, you know, we've focused on having a really diverse set of partners out there to really deliver on the unique different requirements that actually happen for each individual customer and 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 consumer. So so part one is we've got the build of you know kind of creating the ecosystem to begin with. We want to continue to invest in building essentially the ecosystem out. And, and the example that I'll use there is that the 50 partners that we have as part of this initial kind of build of the ecosystem today really cover quite a multitude of different use cases. And we want to continue to invest in that because what what we really understand from a Plaid perspective, having you know now worked with about five and a half to 6,000 platforms that have embedded Plaid as part of their kind of product and service offering, um, is that that end service offering is often quite unique, very much to the point that Robert and Jeremy were just touching on, like creating unique customer experiences is certainly important. And that uniqueness is also important as you even go from different country to different region. You know, we want to continue to partner not only with great uh, partners domestically in the in the UK, but we want to continue to expand that uh, into, say, France and Germany, where we more recently added all of our PIS payment capabilities into um, and so not only do we want to do that from a geographic perspective, but we want to also do that from um, a use case or product ex- uh, perspective, which I just mentioned. Um, so that's going into and extending this capability into other verticals, for example, into gaming is a really good example or bill pay. Again, all these use cases typically are quite unique and there's different product experiences that you know our, our clients uh, and their end consumers are looking for. So again, this for us with this first initial build of partner um, is really a start. Um, and it's been really encouraging kind of post the announcement last week. Uh, I can tell you I was flooded with emails and phone calls and text messages, particularly it was Money 2020 US here this uh, this past week uh, from a bunch of different payment executives who all were kind of like lining up to say, hey, we know that you've just made the announcement, but we too would love to actually build this um, and be part of this payment ecosystem of Plaids as well, because we think that we can offer a unique and differentiated service to our customer. So this is really just the start of what will be a long-term build for us because you know building ecosystems like this uh, takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but ultimately we believe it will deliver the most amount of value for the consumer long-term. And it's also a testament to the phrase, if, if you build it, they will come. Uh, so congrats on, on doing that. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next story. We could really go on for about 808 payments forever, but let's go next story. So Klarna and Stripe announced a buy now, pay later partnership. So this came from the Financial Times. Uh, Stripe has entered into a strategic partnership with buy now, pay later provider Klarna, making it easy for retailers to add options for customers to pay in installments. Stripe will allow retailers to add Klarna Bank buy now, pay later services as a purchasing tool for customers. The partnership makes Klarna's flexible payment options available to millions of internet businesses across the US and 19 countries in Europe. Klarna typically partners with stores directly to embed its checkout button, um, and this move could give Klarna a much wider reach of customers, so getting them in a lot more checkout experiences. Uh, Klarna makes money from deals uh, with retailers which pay the company a small cut on each transaction processed through its platform. Stripe said early results are showing merchants saw a 27% increase in sales on average after integrating with Klarna. Uh, So while average order value climbed 41%, this is huge. This is amazing. I mean, I think that that being able to be in front of a lot more checkout experiences is super, is incredibly valuable, but I'm going to come to you, Robert. Um, What what are your thoughts on on this story and on buy now, pay later in general and Stripe even? Yeah. So we, um, Obviously, we talk to a lot of retailers. We, we power the pipes between banks and brands. And so most of the brand folks that I talk to view Buy Now, Pay Later as a conversion rate optimization tool. As you said, they know if they put Klarna in, then conversion rate goes up by 41% and average basket goes up by 30%. And so if you have more conversions, then you can afford to spend more on marketing and kind of everything spirals up. And if your competitors are doing it, then you kind of can't afford not to do it. And so I'd kind of view this, we've we've kind of gone down the 
by now pay later moral side of the argument a million times listen to a uh, a after dark episode if you want to go into that um but yeah i think it's it's a conversion rate optimization play it's kind of tools if stripe are offering the tools to e-commerce companies to build on then this is it's almost table stakes i'd, I'd view it as like a no-brainer uh, partnership between the two Definitely. I mean, I wonder what this means for for competition as well moving forward. I, I, nothing really has been said about whether or not this is an exclusive partnership. So I don't know if Afterpay or any of these other guys are able to to, to jump in bed with with Stripe. But um, so just in, in terms of just pure uh, competition, uh, what are your thoughts around this, Alex? I mean, especially considering the fact that Buy Now Pay Later is so prolific, it's everywhere. Uh, it's even going to be more everywhere, I guess, now that it's attached to Stripe. Yeah, I mean, Stripe and Klarna, those are two massive names globally, right? I mean, personally, I was buying something a couple of days ago um, and I went to the checkout and there were about 10 or 15 embedded buttons for Buy Now Pay Later services which was like quite frankly overwhelming. But funnily enough, the Klarna one does stand out. I'm not sure why, maybe it's the, the brand name. But it's a great thing. It is, yeah, <laughs> it's it's the color. Um, I think from a competition perspective, I mean, Stripe and Klarna coming together as one is, is pretty powerful. Um, I'd be curious to see if Stripe are, are sort of getting anything off this from a revenue perspective. I suspect they might be, I'm not sure. But I think, I don't know, it may well be exclusive, it may not be. Um, but this might be the start of these kinds of partnerships growing between, you know, payment integrators, um, like, you know, Aiden, for example, and these other buy now later services all around the world. So I think it's, you know, TBC, to be honest with you. For me, kind of the most interesting part of Buy Now Pay Later is the fact that that brands are effectively paying for personal loans, and the kind of economic flip that that happened that has is kind of super interesting. And then you get more and more users into the ecosystem, and then who owns the user? Does Connor own the user? Does the brand own the user? And then I think they start to look more like AdWords and Facebook ads than they do. Um, a kind of lender, and I think like the more like the the network effects around Bernie Pelleta, we kind of don't discuss enough. We we kind of stick to the fact that individuals are getting hundred pound loans. Yeah, I actually saw um, last week as well on Twitter someone had uh, had posted a checkout screenshot of a Facebook Pay. I'm not sure if that was real or not, but um, it seems like they're entering into this market as well, which isn't really surprising considering that you can log in with Facebook. Why not? Why can't you pay with Facebook, right? It seems like the logical next step in that that kind of flow. I think what this shows to some degree is strategically what these two businesses are doing, which is on the one hand, Klarna that you know has been involved in the, the, the checkout part of the business model, but has very much seen, look, Stripe, uh, Square, et cetera, they, ha- they really have the scale on this. We're very good at the shopping experience, at the payment and pay later experience. That's where we're really uh, our competitive advantage is. And you know, whereas the likes of Stripe and Square, et cetera, are just getting to real scale in terms of payment and, and checkout experience. And so they're, they're coming together here, and whether it's exclusive or not, they're coming together here, and they're one of the few sort of ones that didn't have a, a natural partner, which demonstrates that, the, that you know, they know where their, where their advantage is. Whether they then want to vertically integrate at some point, uh, question mark. But I think that, that, that very much shows it. I think the interesting thing about Klarna is that they are, you know, they've, they've been profitable around this model of essentially point-of-sale finance for online. I buy now what's now you know, thought of as buy now, pay later for 10 or 15 years now. And they've really taken that model to a, to a different place. You know, Alex was saying, well, they're the, they're the sort of button that shows up. They know a lot about where to put the button. They know a lot about you know the colouring and, and the marketing of that button. But if you see how fast they're growing now, they're actually growing way beyond their merchant signups, if you will. Right. So in the US, they're downloading a, you know a million apps a month, and that's essentially direct to consumer rather than through necessarily a, a particular. It's a publisher business, not a lending business. Yeah. And now they're actually getting ahead of the, it's not the point of sale that's interesting or the point of purchase, it's the pre-purchase that's interesting. They're putting uh, shopping lists and other things together that actually means that they're, they're engaging the customer in what they want to buy in the future. So buy now, pay later is where everyone's going now. They're chasing these incumbent players that have been, around, been there for 10, 15 years, whilst the incumbent players are actually building up uh, essentially pre-purchase finance capability. Yeah, I think it's also quite an interesting um Thing to consider is is that this was a partnership um, 
uh, rather than an, an act, well, who's going to acquire um, <laughs> Klarna? But I mean, like rather than acquisition or or even building it themselves, Paul, I'm going to come to you about this. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about if you build if you build it, they will come. Um, can you just give your thoughts on on why on, on is are we seeing a collaboration consolidation boom happening right now? Are, are fintechs more likely to to partner than to acquire or build themselves? Uh, what is the ecosystem looking like? And with, with a player like yourself with Plaid, um, is this something that, that Plaid is planning to do in the future? Look, I, I think the big thing uh, that we focus on uh, at Plaid is really to, to continue to kind of give as much optionality for people as they possibly can. And I think the critical piece there is, I think that there's unique ways that a lot of companies across the fintech ecosystem can find unique ways to partner that will just create more value for the end consumer. Um, and so I think that we're, we're entering a phase of greater collaboration between a lot of fintechs. I, I think that there's been really this big kind of proliferation of microservices. We've seen kind of fintech kind of break down into very unique capabilities for a period of time. And, and we had sort of this era of microservices for a period of time. You know, people talk about kind of moving to a world of like the super app or, or the super platform at, at some point and kind of like that pendulum shift swinging 180 degrees kind of back over. I, I don't necessarily believe that that's true, but I think that there's going to be really unique places where two fintechs, a bank and a fintech, a processor and a fintech, a processor and a bank will continue to find unique ways, right, to deliver important value for a consumer. And I think that that's exciting long term for the consumer as well, because no longer do we get the monolithic vanilla version of, you know, financial services. This is what fintech is about. It's actually about delivering unique and high value services. And, And I actually think that um, especially given the community that we're in, we're a highly collaborative bunch. We're a highly innovative bunch of, of, of tech providers as well. And so honestly, you know, we're really excited about what that future looks like together because, you know, this is definitely like the, you know, one plus one equals three outcome, right? And I think every fintech has a unique ability to do that. And again, for Plaid, you know, given the intersection for where we sit at today, uh, really at the sort of the heart of the ecosystem itself. Again, we think it's it's just a super exciting path forward. It, it is super exciting. And before before we wrap the story, I really want to come to Rob. Um, so Rob Button has has really recently partnered with Cash App, like you mentioned, um, and you've you've got other partnerships as well. What is the what what does the nitty gritty look like for these kinds of collaborations and practice? Like, what, what what can you give us some insight into what you think happened in those boardrooms? So I think if the deal's big enough, it gets done. Like it's it's kind of relatively easy to get done. You've got enough ex- executive sponsorship to get through the difficult bits, and those difficult bits are contracts and security reviews, which are, as Paul will know better than most, like super painful. And but if you have board level buy-in, the kind of internal wheels are greased enough to get it done. I think the bottom end, if you can build a self-serve tool, which again is super hard to do well, it can kind of get done. That middle bit is like really hard to do because it's not super easy and it's not super lucrative. And so I suspect, you know, commercially, this is a no-brainer, like in terms of getting through the legals and through the infosec stuff, there's kind of enough will to get to the top of the to-do list of the infosec team and the legal team so that kind of gets done easily and so i i'm sure this this was not a straightforward deal but i think there was enough board level will to kind of get it done again it's those it's those middle deals that are really annoying yeah i think i think also seeing two fintech darlings uh partner up and and have a lovely union is, is always fun for the rest of us in the ecosystem all right so uh we're gonna take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, uh, we'll be back shortly. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with Deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D-E-E-L 
Mint.com forward slash 11FS and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalised experiences that increase retention, satisfaction and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Hey folks, I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. I'll be speaking at SASA's Innovation Summit on the 9th of November, where I'll be delivering an exclusive keynote on how banking can unlock innovation in the banking battlefield. The Innovation Summit is your opportunity to be inspired, raise questions and discuss solutions with select banking industry peers and experts on the most pressing issues for you as a leader and decision maker in the industry. This is an exclusive live event aimed at senior executives. The format is intimate and you won't be able to catch this one on demand. So for your chance to address your strategic challenges, unlock the future of your business and make connections, join me at the Innovation Summit hosted by SAS. See you there. And we're back. New Neobank Pennyworth launches. So this is from Altify and we also have a special guest here to talk about it. Uh, so new Neobank Pennyworth has launched its app to UK customers. Pennyworth was founded to help busy professionals, managers, and business owners plan for and achieve their most important life aspirations. Its new app puts people in control of their financial futures by helping them prioritize goals and create tailored financial plans uh, in a few taps. The app has been in beta since early 2021 and is now live for both iOS and Android users. Pennyworth was started by two former Barclays executives uh, seeking to serve aspiring affluent individuals uh, who it says are neglected by traditional banks. It uses sophisticated algorithm software to create tailored financial plans based on an understanding of each user's goals and circumstances. So Jeremy, naturally, we're going to come to you. First of all, congratulations. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by aspiring affluent individuals, uh, your target market? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a part of the usually retail banking market, uh, often thought of as mass affluent. We t- we define it as as people with incomes over forty thousand or liquid savings over forty thousand, up to about one hundred fifty thousand, and it's about ten million customers in the UK, and they represent a large share of retail banking balances. So about six hundred fifty billion pounds worth of saving, one hundred billion pounds worth of consumer credit, about eight hundred billion pounds worth of mortgages, and also revenue as a consequence of that. So they're sort of twenty percent of the retail market, but about eighty percent of the revenue that's generated from the retail banks. But they are really not rich enough, if you will, or, or have high enough incomes to be interesting to private banks, and so they tend to to get the uh, same service, one size fits all, that the retail banks provide. And so, you know, what we are what we are trying to do at Pennyworth knowing this 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 audience has this is, is has this fundamental problem is as a consequence because they are not rich enough for advice, they are they represent a big part of what's called the the advice gap. They have serious financial planning concerns because they have complex finances, but they've only got the regular products from the main banks. And so, how do you help those customers overcome issues such as, you know, how do I go about funding my life? You know, uh, what changes do I make to my finances? How do I get more out of my money? And so what Pennyworth is offering is an easy solution to those customers of how do they go about fulfilling those personal financial issues and doing so in a very financially optimized way without incurring the cost of financial advice. So and that's, that's really cool. I think um, David, our CEO, has a quote where he says um, that people want more personalized banking and fintech is enabling more personalized banking services. So basically getting the level of banking that Rihanna gets uh, for everyone. So can you tell us a little bit about what is that level of banking? So what is Pennyworth offering to its customers uh, that your competitors are not able to meet? So can you give a little bit more context around that? Yeah, I mean, the, w- the way we try to uh, address the problem is Actually, most customers aren't that interested in doing financial planning and thinking about their finances. They're not getting out every day to really you know, search for those types of solutions, yet they sort of know that, that, they, that they need to be doing more with their finances. And so what we're trying to do is 
help customers focus on what are the things they're trying to achieve in life and not just the sort of short-term budgeting items, but actually what, you know, the swathe of, of big rocks, big financial goals that you're trying to achieve throughout your life, whether it's buying a house, preparing for retirement, and all the things in between, you know, going to university, etc., and help people line up those items that they're that they're, they they think are the most important. And then we, Pennyworth, helps turn that into a financial plan. Essentially, comes along and then does the hard financial uh, bit, turning it into a plan, optimizing. Then, what are the combinations of potentially borrowing, saving, and investments that that help deliver? Uh, that plan. It's essentially what a financial advisor might do. Uh, they'd figure out what, it, what do you own, what are you trying to achieve, and here's a bunch of suggestions. But using the power of a digital algorithm to help uh, solve those issues. So do you? So you obviously you offer the advice. Do you have integrations with? You mentioned investments, for example. Do you have integrations with um, wealth platforms that that you're able to sort of integrate with and, and trigger sort of you know investment stock purchasing via via Pennyworth, or is that is it more of a, an advice thing and then you go and do this on the side? How do, how does that work? Well, first and foremost, it's very clear that what we're providing is guidance, and so it's it's essentially saying, hey, here, here, if these are the things you're you're trying to achieve, here here is the, here. Is the, uh, here's, the, here's the best sort of form of plan that you might lay out uh, for that. Unregulated products predominantly, so it, it doesn't actually have require a, 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 an advice process. But yes, in the sense that essentially a lot of these solutions are both you know, savings and savings and loans, but also investments. What most people will need in that instance, though, is then very, very simple you know, diversify portfolios to actually achieve those longer term goals, those sort of retirement goals. So yes, but Pennyworth will be integrating more and more with providers of those services and even perhaps more complex services uh, for those customers who want it. But essentially, yeah, it's about laying out here is the, you know, here's the best solution as we see it for your, for what you're trying to achieve. Here are the options that you choose as to whether what the what the right products are, but you know we've we've laid it out for you. So I'm, I'm, I want to talk I want to talk a little bit about the, the makeup of of, uh, of the team. You so Jeremy Takel and Ben Harvey, uh, former execs uh, at Barclays, um, you guys come with what I call BBE Big Bank Energy. Um, so you really have a ton of experience, Jeremy. I know you've previously worked and advised Klarna in the past and managing director as well at, uh, at, at uh, Barclays Digital Consumer Bank. Like you guys are coming with some heavy, heavy experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what lessons you've learned, what, uh, uh, like building a neobank from scratch, coming from an incumbent environment? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because we found it increasingly difficult to build the types of banks that you want to build today inside a large organization like Barclays. They're very siloed. And increasingly, as we're building the digital consumer bank in the U- in the US, we were setting it up as a scale agile business, building our own Microsoft platform, etc. And it was increasingly difficult to run that as an interdisciplinary team inside that sort of very hierarchical, very silent structure. And so our thinking on this is, you really need to uh, try to build these sort of things outside of, of the large banks. However, there are not a lot of people inside the large banks that are used to building businesses like this. It's something that's only done really at the periphery. At the same time, when you go out and start working with people who have no banking experience, they just don't have the benefit of having tried a lot of these things before, and they're relearning a lot of lessons about what, what what works in banking. How do you do, how do you manage a, and and how do you support a consumer uh, uh, through their personal finance issues? And so, what we are always struggling for, always trying to find, are people who have those sort of hybrid skills, and that's actually quite few and far between. There. There are a lot of people in the big banks running consumer businesses, but they're typically sitting in very narrow functions, whether that's in digital functions or mm-hmm. IT functions or product functions, and very little collaboration between them. And those that are used to operating like that and building businesses and so forth have very uh, little experience. But you know, uh, maybe I mean we we see across our when people setting goals inside the Pennyworth app, you know, the the the. The, the more likely uh, people to set up their own businesses are in their 50 plus. So maybe this is something we're to see more of uh, going forward. Jeremy, why now? Like, what, what was the moment that like drove you to, you kind of got this, I'm not sure it was cushy job at uh, Barclays, but you, you, you had a solid job and now you have arguably the hardest job in the world being CEO and co-founder. <laughs> 
Yes, and and well, and and one of the most enjoyable, I think. But I spent a lot of my time at Barclays, as did Ben, building banks, and that was in, at a time when, back to our conversation earlier around how easy is that to do nowadays. In the past, that was difficult to do. You only could do that inside a large organization. It was only large banks that had the capital, the systems, the regulatory approvals to allow you to go and set up new franchises around the world. That increasingly is is no longer true. And it became also more and more difficult to do it inside a large bank. So we were spending a lot of our time trying to navigate the silos rather than actually delivering genuine value to customers. And that frustration resulted in uh, deciding that after having built the Digital Consumer Bank in the US and came back to the UK and said, okay, so what, what, what's the next thing I, I, could, I could usefully do in terms of building a great franchise? That had to happen outside of a large organization. Uh, it took a while to, uh, to figure out exactly what that should look like. And I spent a bit of time helping a few other businesses with their banking strategy. But it then became clear that actually, you know, there's a lot of the uh, the core components that are now available that you can put together as a service and add your unique uh, capabilities to uh, to do it uh, on your own. Yeah, I guess uh, timing, uh, timing the market, timing is, is is always important. And thank you for the insight into into why now, really. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next story. So, Bunk launches local currencies to enable users uh, to bank without borders. Amsterdam's neobank Bunk has launched a new local currency account to help its users easily receive convert and hold and spend multiple currencies. Bunk believes this will help traveling remote workers with their immediate banking and financial needs. Uh, the development bank comes after the addition of local European IBAN. So IBAN stands for International Bank Account Number, uh, regardless of residency. So making Bunk the first bank to offer cross-border bank accounts for digital nomads. Uh, so Bunk was founded in 2012 by serial entrepreneur Ali Nicknam. Currently, Bunk is available in 30 European markets. So before we go to the panel for this, uh, we do actually have a clip from Bunk CEO, Ali. So who can tell us a little bit more about this new feature? Hi, this is Ali from Bunk, and I'd like to use this amazing opportunity provided to us by Fintech Insider to tell you all about our fantastic launch this week. Because after many, many months of work, I am very proud to announce we have launched multi-currency at Bunk. This means as of this week, you can hold six different currencies directly in the Bunk app. You can send, receive, and transfer money as if it was any of your other sub-accounts, and you can enjoy all of the benefits that brings. This is a major step in our bank like a local strategy where we enable our users to use their Bunk account all across Europe, no matter where they're from, or what the local requirements are, all from the same view. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or remarks, please reach out to Bunk. And better yet, if you got excited as I am, please sign up for Bunk through the App Store. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Awesome. The rise of nomads and, and borderless accounts is really exciting. Alex, I'm going to come to you first uh, for your thoughts on this story. Yeah, good question. I mean, according to the research, there's 35 million digital nomads across the globe, which is bonkers. I've often thought about um, like setting up shop and uh, buying a camper van and you know taking my uh, my laptop and decoding in the middle of nowhere. So I can I'm sure there is, and it obviously is a market for this. I'd be really interested to see how they're achieving this behind the scenes. Obviously, I'm a, I'm an engineer, so I I wonder whether they've got one sort of ledger system that's storing all of these different asset types, whether they, whether they've got a, a banking license themselves and how that works from a cross border perspective, or if they're sort of sort of uh, jumping on board with some payment providers. Um, I think it's a really cool concept. I mean, personally, I I can't, I'm perfectly happy with, I get paid in pounds. Um, I'd be interested to see how they deal with payments and, you know, whether those payments, uh, whether those accounts, for example, are, uh, if you've got an account in pounds, an account in euros, whether they have different, you know, IBANs, et cetera. I mean, a lot of questions I'm asking you, I don't really have answers to, but um, it sounds like a really, really cool concept. Um, I'd be keen to see more. It's, uh, it's interesting that they've been around for, since 2000, 2012 and then clearly exploded in the last 18 months so yeah certainly right place right time why do you think that is well i think if i didn't if i didn't have two kids in school i'd be working from chamonix right now and i think there's 
There's a lot of people that would be in a similar situation. Our main office was in New York. We had a bunch of people sat in New York and very quickly they scattered around the states. And that's that's posed a bunch of problems for us in terms of income tax and like states and and like that's in one country. Like everyone says that you can like work remotely, go go work from Vietnam for three months, but like the actual practical implications of doing that are still we're still building the rails to go through that. So yeah, like I, I if I didn't have two kids in school, I would a hundred percent be stood somewhere more exotic right Working now. Working from your villa. I would totally come and join you as well, Robert. That, that, that sounds that sounds amazing. We'll do a fintech insider in a yard. <laughs> but I, look, I, I think it sounds it, it's super exciting, right? Like this this is the promise of what fintech can actually go and deliver for us, right? And, and again, when you think about the monolithic way that people have banked historically, the ability for you to you know you go back to the early days, right, where you had to go and get, you know, American Express to print you traveler's checks, right, just to, to get into a country. Now we're, we're talking about the digitization, the amplification of mobility, right? And, and, and that, that I think, like, that is the promise of what fintech is about. Uh, and I think it also just speaks, to vo- speaks volumes to, you know, what people want from a fintech and payment and banking product and solution. They want this ability because I think the pandemic has shown that, there's a lifestyle component that people want to pursue relative to their work. I think now is the massive opportunity for the tech to catch up to that. And I think what we're going to see more and more of are technology providers like these guys and others building those capabilities to make these things seem and feel more seamless. Because at the end of the day, you know, I, I think technology delivers amazing promises about removing the headaches, removing the challenges, right, of things like banking and financial services to allow for that to happen. And to Robert's point, look, I think that we're at a very, very early stage for this, um, but I think it presents a, a really massive opportunity for companies that can really help drive that cross-border international capability. And again, with a big focus on simplification and ease of use for the consumer, I think ultimately it's a big one. I'd be really interested to see how they tackle KYC in this in this instance. Um, because I, I'm, again, I'm not sure how the underlying technology is working, but um, you know, KYCing across multi geos is quite a tough thing to do. If they've already onboarded customers, and then they're giving them the opportunity to open to have you know multi currency accounts, surely those underlying store of value, whether it's Bunk that are holding the responsibility there or whether it's a third party, um, they're going to require different KYC information. And apologies, I'm thinking a bit more like technically, but um, I, I'm just I'm just really fascinated as to how they're achieving that. Why am I not surprised? We get it, we get him out of the developer side and <laughs> get him onto the uh, onto the podcast today, and directly into the tech side. Yeah, I think what this what this represents though is genuine passporting. I mean, this is exactly what what it is we we hoped was going to be possible with our international IBANs and, and multi IBAN uh, capability that you could you essentially you could onboard someone in one jurisdiction and then take them across. Because quite frankly, a lot of banking and consumer banking here I'm talking about is not international it's not it's not global in any way it's multi-domestic you need different credit systems different uh, um, credit bureau uh, records uh, different payment rails etc in different countries and actually the biggest problem we used to have for people wanting to actually move around and not just short term perhaps but more medium term is you know helping people get a telephone get a flat get a property uh, of some sort, or, or or simply you know uh, get an account, and we're solving part of these issues. Where it's, I mean, thirty five million sounds like a lot, but actually it's probably quite widely spread. And where where the real opportunity is then to find the corridors where there's a large volume of people. We see that uh, coming into the US as well, uh, as well as across Europe. And then you can you can actually then you can actually then start helping customers much more because you can start broadening the services that are available to them. One of my favorite companies. Uh, uh, Nova Nova Credit in the in the in the, the, uh, that are, is available to the U.S. You know, taking your passporting essentially your credit footprint from India or whatever else, so that you can start actually you know getting a credit card, getting a loan, buying things, getting a car uh, in the U.S. And that's that's the those are the real substantial problems that I'm looking forward to us uh, starting to solve. This is this is exciting, but it's actually at the periphery. I mean, I think, you know, 11FS always say, you know, it's always, we're only 1% done. There's so much still to go at here. So much of those 
that uh, fundamental uh, financial services market to go to. Absolutely. And you know what, like, yeah, with with the world changing now and with, with the pandemic, things are not going to look the way they did two, three years ago. So I'm, I'm always excited to hear about uh, fintechs like this, um, really meeting customers where they're at um, geographically as well. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go to the next segment. So this is the stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, so for this part of the show, we're going to quickly round up some of the other stories from this week that we didn't have a chance to cover in depth, uh, but they do still deserve a shout out. So Alex, do you want to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. So first up, we've got Extend, who has raised $40 million for its virtual card offering to help banks better compete with fintechs. This is from TechCrunch. Tech so Extend, if you don't know who they are, a, they're a New York-based startup which provides digital payment infrastructure for financial institutions so they can offer virtual cards to their users has raised $40 million in a Series B funding round. The round was led by March Capital and other investors including B Capital, Wells Fargo and Pacific Western Bank. The latest financing brings Extend's total raise since 2017 to $55 million when it was, in, when it was created. And so far, Extend has more than 2,000 business customers currently using its applications and it's growing 30% month over month. Last month, Extend linked to deal with American Express, which allows its millions of small and mid-sized businesses card members to access virtual cards through their existing physical cards in minutes. And so far, Extend has signed deals with seven traditional financial institutions, with the target of working with 20 by the end of the year. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one. I, had a, I haven't heard of Extend, and I had a quick look on their website beforehand and, and kind of what they offer. And what they're basically offering is if you're a company like American Express, you've got a credit card, you can then extend that physical credit card and create virtual cards based off that physical one. So it's kind of a bit like how, and I'm going to go back to Monzo and name call them again, but um, it's kind of how virtual cards work in Monzo, right? And I think... I think this is a symptom of a larger problem. I feel like this is a band-aid on a larger problem which businesses are having, which is to be able to, I think, you know, you've got that one physical card and multiple virtual cards. I think there's a better solution to this. I'm not going to say what it is now because I don't know the answer, but I just feel like it's a, a slight band-aid to, to, a, to a larger issue around how we're segregating payments um, in general. But that's my thought on that anyway. Someone's probably listening and writing down furiously a, a new fintech idea. Think off the back of that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next story is carbon footprint tracker Kogo raises $20 million ahead of COP26, which is a UN climate change conference. So carbon footprint tracking expert Kogo has kicked off a 20 million Series A funding round ahead of the COP26 uh, summit. Uh, so Kogo is on a mission to empower consumers and businesses globally to take action by measuring, reducing and compensating for their impact on the environment. Uh, the team based in Wellington, London, Melbourne and New York uh, is expanding rapidly and pushing the conscious consumerism movement. Kogo has announced partnerships with several of the world's 50 largest banks ahead of the raise, including NatWest in the UK, ComBank in Australia and Santander in Spain, as well as leading accounting platform Zero. So this is really interesting. I'm always, you know, we're seeing a rise in in this conscious consumerism phase of the world. A lot more people are opting to, to uh, use services that that give back to the environment or that, that have carbon carbon offsets. But I'm curious, I'm curious about the nitty gritty of how Kogo is doing this personally, because Carbon offsets are one thing, um, but in, oftentimes in practice on the ground, they don't really do much for the communities in which they exist. So I'm curious, and, and for the communities where climate change is really affecting the hardest, so in the global south specifically. Uh, so I'm curious if if, um, if and when they can give more detail about that. But this is really exciting. It's, it's really cool to see $20 million uh, in a Series A go to a, a climate conscious uh, company. To find out a little bit more about this story, we reached out to Ben Gleisner, founder and CEO of Kogo, to tell us a little bit more about the company and this funding round. Hi, I'm Ben, founder and CEO of Kogo. Kogo is an API and app company that helps individuals and businesses to measure, improve and compensate for their impact on the planet. We provide things like an app for you as an individual to track your carbon footprint in real time, give you recommendations on how to reduce it and then offset the rest We've also built APIs that power things like NatWest uh, in terms of a product that you'll soon be able to see on your NatWest app. But what's exciting is we've just announced our plans to launch a Series A, 20 million US target. Unlike some 
places that like will announce the round when they've finished. Uh, we're quite keen to democratize and decentralize the ownership of our company. Ultimately, it's the customers, the users, and the staff that are actually generating the value for our company. Uh, and so we want to give them a chance to actually own the business before it gets to an IPO. So um, we're doing something slightly different. We're going to be working with crowdfunding platforms uh, in all the markets we operate, uh, giving the chance for individuals, family offices, and some of our customers to invest as well. Yeah, we're going to use the money to expand our operations uh, in the UK, um, Australia, and New Zealand, but also launch into Europe and into North America market. Ultimately, there's just so much demand. We get emails every day from banks, supermarkets, insurance companies, you name it, asking us to help support their customers uh, to do good um, through the purchases they're making. So yeah, we're here, as we say at Kogo, let's go change the world. Let's Kogo. Alex? Cool. Yeah. So up next, um, this is a pretty big one, actually. So Chima in talks to go public at between 35 to $45 billion uh, valuation. And this comes from Forbes. So San Francisco Digital Bank Chime, if you don't know uh, them, is in talks to go public at a valuation of from 35 to $45 billion, um, according to Forbes sources, as we said. So according to the source, the fintech is targeting March 2020 for the IPO. And the source also added that the company's revenue is likely to reach $900 million to $1 billion this year. Founded in 2013, Chime offers checking accounts with no monthly or overdraft fees and has gained a particularly strong following among lower and middle income Americans. Chime raised $750 million at a $25 billion valuation back in August. Um, however, Chime have declined to comment on this story. Um, this feels like one IPO that I've been waiting for for a while, so I certainly wouldn't be surprised if this is actually going to happen. Um, so let's see what March 2022 gives us. Seems so far away, two years after the beginning of the pandemic. Well, all right. Uh, so let's uh, bring everyone back for the final story of the week, the end finally story. So Monzo launches a London bus ad campaign and Twitter account. The campaign sees transport for London's TFL, uh, buses covered in a bright coral color matching Monzo's um, cards. Hot coral actually is the color. <laughs> um, Monzo announced the campaign on Twitter and instantly nodded to the bus on Twitter on the Twitter account, which is uh, Monzo Bus on Twitter. Uh, Monzo linked the account, tweeting, "We regret to announce that it's got its own Twitter account. Please don't encourage them." <laughs> so sentient uh, bus. The Monzo Bus account spire reads, "Live, laugh, bus," and its first tweet was, "Beep beep." Uh, the team behind Monzo Bus has since shared several images of the bus in various locations, including the streets of Paris with the beret on, a roller coaster, and also sleeping in bed like most of us do. This is hilarious and, and really fun. It's a fun story. But uh, have you guys seen this yet? Have you, seen, have you been on the internet and seen, seen this? It's all over my Twitter feed. Yeah, I saw it online. I haven't seen it out and about yet. I've been eagle-eyed waiting for this bus to come by on the streets of London. Uh, yeah. and hopefully at some point it'll make a visit to uh, to San Francisco. We, we would be really impressed to see it over here. I think it just goes I think it just goes from Bode into the city. I'm not sure it makes it all the way over to the States. I don't know, I don't know the bus routes in London. Well we would we would welcome them with, yeah. with open arms. Uh, it's a it's a great colour. I think they should put that colour on as many large things as they can. You know, even to this day, like I'm in Kenya right now and I still see Monzo cards here and it gets me really excited. The color is so cool. They did such a great job. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, but also this is coming at a really interesting time. So um, recently uh, it's, it's come out um, that Monzo could be fundraising. So they're rumored to be in talks with shareholders to raise another 300 million pounds to fund expansion plans. Uh, so this was first reported by Business Insider. Monzo spokespeople have declined to comment about this, but what do you guys think about this campaign coming right before some rumors about fundraising uh, a fintech darling in London? Like, wh wh what do you think? Do you think this is all planned or is it a coinkydink? I don't know if it's planned. It, it may be just be a coincidence. I mean, there's definitely an overheard conversation here uh, that is useful if, if it gets a lot of pickup that could be used, you know, in, to show that, you know, Monzo is still relevant and is really uh, still still seen as a cool brand. I don't know. I mean, Monzo have used quite traditional media uh, and been very successful at it. They, you know, TV, they did the tube ads and other things, but perhaps with, with less less re less return. But uh, I'm not sure this is this has inherent value as as its own campaign, other than the, the as I said, the the overheard conversation or the the brand thrill that gets created for it. And so you, you may you may believe that there's a there's another good reason other than just trying to uh, excite your community. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, quickly, you, you, 
you've seen this rise of, uh, of of large brands and corporates sort of going on Twitter and almost acting like they are like a person. And you see these these Twitter threads where someone will post like Starbucks will post something and they'll get six thousand likes, and then all these other brands will will sort of jump on the pile in the replies. You'll get Burger King, and they're all acts. It's very cleverly done because it makes you feel like you know very personable, right? Um, at the end of the day, they're like a, they're a massive company behind this, and I think there's a little bit of that with this Monzo bus Twitter thing. I think it's great personally, but I uh, I think it's an interesting marketing. I'm not I'm no marketeer as you can probably tell. But um, I think it's a, an interesting thing that seems to be the trend to do or the cool thing right now. And perhaps there's an element of Monza just kind of, as I said, jumping on that bandwagon of uh, of, of corporates becoming cool, essentially. Do you know what? I, I love, I, I, I used to find it quite cringy when, when corporate Twitter accounts used to, you know, try and be cool. But now there's a different tone to them. And I don't know if it's because millennials have, have like moved out of those jobs and now it's Gen Zs who are like <laughs> tweeting the wildest stuff from like company, <laughs> it is insane what these people yeah. get away with. I, I really don't know what it is, but uh, it, it is. It has been quite fun to see, especially even on TikTok as well. All these brands are on TikTok too, just um, going ham in the comments. Uh, it's it's wild. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's uh, let's let's wrap this week's news show. Um, so thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Paul? Um, best place uh, to find out a little bit more about me is just on LinkedIn. That's probably like the main social channel that I'm on. Uh, so please feel free to contact and connect with me there. Jeremy? Yeah, similarly, uh, find out about me on, on LinkedIn, but also at uh, pennyworthfinancial.com where we have a little bit of our origin story there as well. Rob? At Rob Beresford on Twitter, uh, Rob Beresford on uh, LinkedIn or usebutton.com. And finally, Alex? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Alex Hooper Dev. Um, and also a quick shout out for Foundry. We are hiring at the moment. So if you're an engineer, front end, back end or DevOps or platform, we are hiring. Come and join the next FinTech OS with us. That was a shameless plug. That's awesome. Yeah, Foundry's a great place to work, I will say. Uh, and as for me, you can find me on at 11fs.com, but also on the godless Twitter app, NotWera. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can join into the conversation on social media or emailing podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.